O God Almighty, through our tears we still sing, for He is risen and He is alive, and we dare to believe until He comes. Speak to us. Through Holy Scripture we pray. In the name of our living Lord Christ Jesus, amen. Be seated, please. In 2008, a young woman named Leah composed the following poem in memory of her mother who died. She posted it on the web. The title of the poem, The Unhealing Wound. There is this wound, it hurts so bad, it always appears when I am sad. No matter what I do, it won't go away. It's in my heart where it, where it will always stay. It appeared the day you left this world and I was no longer your little girl, forced to grow up with you not there to make things easy that I couldn't bear. I search for you every day. If I'm sick, sad, or just have something to say, I'm jealous of some girls, girls who still have their mothers. I tell them to appreciate what they have because after they are gone, there simply is no other. I have this pain that won't go away. It makes me mad that you couldn't stay. No matter many years go by, there's still one time of day that I do cry. I miss you dearly, and this is true. My wound will not heal until I'm with you. Two years later, at the same website, another girl named Megan posted this message. My best friend's mother was killed by a drunk driver. She was the most awesomest person ever. She was like my second mom. Now I have no one to call at 3 o'clock in the morning to ask if everything's going to be okay. And about two weeks ago, my friend took her life. She was raped. She couldn't take the pain. I was there when she took her life. I saw the pain in her eyes as I tried to save her, but it was too late. Now she is gone, and one day I will be too, but not too soon. I have, I have too much ahead of me, but I will always live with the pain of losing loved ones. The pain of losing loved ones. I suppose that's about the rawest pain that a human heart can endure, the pain of losing loved ones, a pain embedded in the story of Joseph and, as it turns out, the parallel story of Jesus, a pain, the pain of losing loved ones. Let's go to Joseph first. Open your Bible with me to Genesis 37, the story of Joseph. We'll start there. Genesis 37, where we, where we left off last week, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. That's our mini-series that takes us to the end of this semester. Subtitle, How to Find Healing for Our Deepest Relationships. Let's go. Ex precisely where we left, left the story last Sabbath. Genesis 37, we'll pick it up in verse 31. Then they, that would be the 12, that would be his brothers who just sold him to the Ishmaelite slave traders. Then they, the brothers, got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and they said, Hey, Papa, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it. Of course he did instantly. 
And he said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. The pain of losing a loved one, the rawest pain there is. Verse 35, and all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Nope, he said. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. For we will always, all of us, live with the pain of losing a loved one to the end. Pain, you know, even the word, it seems, it seems so inadequate to capture the depths of the agony. We saw the tears this morning. Jacob has just gotten the word. There's a certain pain in the learning of sudden death, and I've seen it on people's faces. Standing on the doorstep with a police officer who wants me to come along so that I'll be the one to tell the husband that his wife was just killed down the road in a car accident. And I stand there trying to fumble for words to somehow announce what I know will leave his life shattered for the rest of his life. The pain of losing a loved one. And when Jacob clutches that bloody coat of many colors, his blood is now coagulated. Brown is red because it's a long way from the pasturage back to the camp. And every terrifying step that the brothers have made their guilty conscience is only more severe in the inflicting of punishment. Jacob holds that coat. It's a moment of sudden death, unalterable watermark for the rest of your life. It will be there. You cannot, you cannot hide it. We know. I don't know. Perhaps it was John Boy. Perhaps it was John Boy who comes bursting through the door into that upper room where they're huddled in fear and agony and heartbreak. The disciples of Jesus, John Boy, bursts through the door in tears. I remind you, by the way, he is the only eyewitness of the disciples of Jesus to the death of Jesus. In tears, he storms into that room with the choking announcement, he's dead. John Boy, who years later will write the story of the death. And I want you to read that story, the story of the cross, recorded by the only eyewitness. So this is John chapter 19. Find it in your Bible, John chapter 19. I want to pick it up, please, in verse 32, because Pilate, the governor, has, has, has issued an order. I need these bodies off this cross for the Jews' sake before sundown. So get them down. If they're not dead, hasten it. Let's go. So now we have verse 32. And so the soldiers, the Romans, Therefore, they came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other, because now you can't breathe and you'll asphyxiate, you'll drown, and you'll be dead. But, verse 33, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but shh, secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus. You remember him, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, verse 40, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jew Jewish burial customs. Desire of Ages draws the veil aside to show us that, in fact, John Boy is there as well. I'll put the put Desire of Ages on the screen for you. Gently and reverently, they removed with their own hands the body of Jesus from the cross. Their tears, you can see this picture, the tears of sympathy fell fast as they looked upon his bruised and lacerated form. Joseph owned a new tomb hewn in a rock. This he was reserving for himself, but it was near Calvary, and he now prepared it for Jesus. The body, together with the spices brought by Nicodemus, was carefully wrapped in a linen sheet, and the Redeemer was born to the tomb. There the three disciples, John Boy, Joseph, and Nicodemus, there the three disciples straightened the mangled limbs and folded the bruised hands upon the pulseless breast. We forget perhaps, perhaps it's never even occurred to us, the tender tie that has bound the heart of Jesus to his disciples, and especially the heart of John Boy. Three and a half intermittent years, they have lived life together. They have laughed together. They have wept together. They have eaten together. They have traveled together. They have loved together. And now he's gone. And oh, by the way, they really truly did believe that he was a long-promised Messiah, God, who would come to earth to save the human race. They had believed it was he. Obviously, it can't be. Jesus was truly their BFF, their best friend forever. Flip it around, their best forever friend. They knew it, and he's dead. The truth is, you and I know this, death is a great terminator. Death is the great destroyer of what we as humans hold most precious, the gift of a relationship, and when that relationship is gone, it's gone. You are dead and gone forever. Clementine. Now we live with it. And you know what? It never goes away. If you were a witness to this moment, you saw it never goes away. Let's go back to Joseph. Come on. We'll go back to Joseph. The stunning truth in both the Joseph and Jesus stories, these parallel accounts embedded in Scripture, is that there is a resurrection that follows the death. Come on, let's go. Back to Genesis 45. Fast forward the uh, highlight reel, will you? Fast forward the highlight reel 25 years. 25 years. Genesis 45, here we come to verse 25. Genesis 45, so they went up out of Egypt. That would be the brothers of Joseph. They went up out of Egypt, and they came to their father Jacob in the land. Much has happened in the intervening 25 years. We can't take a moment to relive it here. We will before this series ends a few, a few weekends from now. But much has happened. Joseph now is the second highest political ruler in the entire empire of Egypt. And he has just announced to them before this verse that he is the little brother they sold into slavery. They are now hurrying home to bring the best news daddy could ever hear in his life. But it will be the most difficult announcement of good news these brothers will ever make. 
because the whole truth and nothing but the truth has to be told this time, 25 years later. Verse 25, and so they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, and they told him, Papa, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Look at I have stood and watched people get the tragic announcement that a sudden death has taken a loved one from them, but I have never stood and watched people get the joyous announcement that the loved one that died has been resurrected. Jacob can't believe it. Stunned. He did not believe them. Verse 27, but when they told him everything. Oh, by the way, it was everything. They told him everything. When they told him everything that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, verse 28, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die because he's alive. Yeah. John 20, same story. John 20, verse 1, and early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That would be John boy. She came running to Peter and John boy, the one Jesus loved, and, and she said, they, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John boy, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Of course he did. He's younger. Not brag about this. Verse 5, he, John boy, bent over, looked into the tomb at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. No. Peter, <laughs> right behind him in verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. What did you think Peter would do? Stand outside? Are you kidding? He's in. And he saw the strips of linen, linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. You know what? John got it. John, boy, these can't be grave robbers. If grave robbers wanted to steal the body, they would take the body. Who cares? Just drag the cloth. Let's go. Out, 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 out. Nobody would have stopped to fold it all very nicely and put the napkin around the head here and the cloth around the body here. Something has happened here. And look at John. John, boy. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, boy, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples, the two of them, went back to where they were staying. Please note that neither Jacob nor John nor Peter has visual evidence that their loved one is alive. What they have is circumstantial at best. But for Jacob and John, it is sufficient to draw the confession. He's alive. My BFF is alive. And soon, as both of the stories will reveal, they will be standing physically in front of the dead loved one. They'll recognize him. 
Mm -hmm. He's changed. Oh, he's changed. Joseph doesn't look the same, but it's still Joseph. Jesus doesn't look the same, but it's still Jesus. Desire of Ages captures that moment. Now put, put, put the words back on the screen again. The resurrection of Jesus was a type. I like to think of that as a dress rehearsal. The resurrection of Jesus was a, t a dress rehearsal of the final resurrection of all who sleep in him. The countenance, now look at this, the countenance, that's the physical features of his face. The countenance of the risen Savior, his manner, his speech, were all familiar to the disciples. Now, it's true. It's true. And, and we needed Dr. Luke to uh, insert this. Luke 24, they go berserk when Jesus when, when suddenly he appears. They are absolutely convinced it is an apparition from Hades itself. Jesus says, hey, look, look. It's, it's I. I'm me. Touch me. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Touch me, touch me. Does a ghost have fingers? Hey, do you have any food around here? How about some fish and bread? Let me eat in front of you. And he began to eat. They got it. And now John. John leaves off that little uh, moment. But here in verses 19 and 20, John, John captures it well. Verse 19, and on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, suddenly Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Shalom, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They saw him, but they didn't see him. They finally get it. They are seeing him now. And then the joy, the hallelujah praise service begins. Wow. Desire of Ages goes on. Put it on the screen. As Jesus rose from the dead. So those who sleep in him are to rise again. Look at this was not in vain what we did. No, 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 no. We shall know our friends. You see, the most precious possession a human clings to his relationship. We shall know our friends, even as the disciples knew Jesus. They, have made, they may have been deformed. We're talking about our friends now who've died. They may have died deformed or diseased or disfigured in this mortal life, and they rise in perfect health and symmetry, yet in the glorified body their identity will be perfectly preserved. Then we shall know even as also we are known in the face, this is beautiful, in the face radiant. Now, this is the face of the risen loved one. In the face radiant with the light shining from the face of Jesus, we shall recognize the lineaments. That would be the distinctive features of mother's face, of my wife's face, of my child's face, the distinctive features. I know that's who, I know who you are. We shall recognize the distinctive faces of those we love. Isn't that beautiful? Come on. Come on, guys. We shall know our friends and those we love. When death, the great terminator, snatches from us forever it feels, forever and ever. In our pain, we are sure. When death, the great terminator, snatches from us that beloved life. The resurrection of Jesus is the glorious promise that one day, our most precious possession will be restored again to us. But here's the question. Can they be restored this side of death? Put another way, do you suppose the power of the risen Christ could also resurrect a deceased relationship in this life? 
In other words, can the power of his grace and love resurrect a friendship, resurrect a marriage, resurrect a family now in this life before he comes? Ah, oh, here's how Scott and Sherry Jennings would answer that question. <laughs> I got to read this to you. In 2005, we had every reason in the world to believe our marriage was over. You may know what they're talking about. My husband, Scott, was living with another woman, and I could see no indication that he would ever turn his heart back to our marriage and family. Everyone had advice to, ad advice to offer me, kick him to the curb, girl. Move on. You deserve better. But God also placed two strong women in my life to encourage me with the truth. You go, God. Thank you for the friends you put into our lives. And they told me I should love and respect my husband unconditionally, honoring the covenant I made with God. They told me as long as you're breathing, there is hope. In September of 2005, on the day, get this, on the day of our 14th wedding anniversary, we divorced. Three days later, Christ invaded Scott's heart, and we remarried each other after a period. Time has to go by. After a period of reconciliation. Today, today we like to tell people, our divorce just didn't work out. <laughs> Isn't that good? Just didn't work out. Hallelujah, yeah, really. Just didn't work out. Yet the truth is that we decided to intentionally pursue God and each other, and it worked. We find ourselves asking, if no one tells couples, how will they know that as long as they are breathing, there is hope for their marriage? Wow. As long as they are breathing, there is hope for their marriage. Hope for our friendships. Psh. Hope for our families. Psh. Hope for marriages, yes. As long, the old adage is where there's life, there's hope. Isn't that, isn't that how it goes? Where there's life, there's hope. You don't give up. Could it be that the power of the risen Christ can resurrect the most broken relationship on earth. I mean, come on, we're talking about Joseph and his brothers. Yep, it took 25 years for him to do it, but he still got it done. We're talking about Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer. It took a whole lot of perseverance and forgiveness and coming back again and again, but he, God got it done. We're talking about the prodigal father with his runaway boy. It took a long time of waiting, but God got it done. We're talking about Jesus and Peter. Come on, please. Who, Jesus, who forgives Peter of his denials, heals him of his shame, restores their friendship. It can get done. Couldn't he take the most broken relationship you and I know and do the same? Now, come on, come on, come on. I know what you're saying. I got it. I got it. Of course, it takes two. It always takes two. But if one, now listen, if one hangs on, the one can become the healing of the two. If the two are willing to become one again. See? Where there is life, there is hope. But the news is even better this Easter weekend. The news is even better because even when there is no life, there is still hope. Give it to me dead. Give it to me on life support. I can give it back to you alive. 
Wow. Why? Because he's alive. That's why. Because I live, you shall live also. That's his promise this Easter for you and me. Where there's life, there's hope. A story no more powerfully rendered than what we're going to end with now. A story written by Lauren Isley, the great anthropologist and naturalist. Listen, let, let, me, let me just set it up, and then we'll go to his first-person account, all right? I'll set it up. So he's young. He's young Isley at the time, Lauren. And, and a, a zoo has contacted him. We need you to get some uh, small birds and reptiles for our collection. Do you mind? He said, I'd be happy to do it. So he's up in the mountain now. He comes across a mountain cabin, dilapidated. He sees a hole in the roof of the cabin. He says, I know what's in that cabin in the rafters. There'll be birds. And so he goes in. He goes, shh. He goes into the cabin. He tiptoes up a ladder. He's placed against the rafters. And as soon as his head and shoulders are above, he has a flashlight in his hand. He's going to blind them. He's got them. I snapped on the flash, and sure enough, there was a great beating and feathers flying, but instead of my having them, they, or rather he, had me. He had my hand, that is, and for a small hog, not much bigger than my fist, he was doing all right. I heard him give one short metallic cry when the light went on, and my hand descended on the bird beside him. After that, he was busy with his claws, and his beak sunk into my thumb. He was a sparrow hawk. And a fine young male in the prime of life. <sighs> I was sorry not to catch the pair of them, but as I dripped blood and folded his wings carefully, holding him by the back so that he couldn't strike again, I had to admit that the two of them might have been more than I could have handled under the circumstances. The little fella that saved his mate by diverting me. And that was that. He was born to it. And he made no outcry now, resting in my hand hopelessly, appearing toward me in the shadows behind the lamp with a fierce, almost indifferent glance. He neither gave nor expected mercy, and something out of the high air passed from him to me, stirring a faint embarrassment. Isley puts the bird in a small box. The next morning, he's going to take the box outside and construct a little cage to take him to the zoo, and as he goes out, he looks up into the deep blue sky. Is she here anywhere? He's looking for her. Gone. Gone. And then on an impulse, Isley took the bird out of the box. Now, here he goes again. He lay limp in my grasp, and I could feel his heart pound under the feathers, but he only looked beyond me and up. I saw him look that last look away beyond me into a sky so full of light that I could not follow his gaze. I suppose I must have had an idea then of what I was going to do, but I never let it come into consciousness. I just reached over and laid the hawk on the grass. He lay there a long minute without hope, unmoving, his eyes still fixed on that blue vault above him. It must have been that he was already so far away in heart that he never felt the release of my hand. He never even stood. He just lay with his breast against the grass. In the next second, after that long minute, boom, he's gone. 
while I had my eyes full on him, but without actually seeing even a premonitory wing beat, he was gone straight into that towering emptiness of light and crystal that my eyes could scarcely bear to penetrate. For another long moment, there was silence. I could not see him. The light was too intense. Then, from far up somewhere, a cry came ringing down. I was young then. And it seemed little of the world, but when I heard that cry, my heart turned over. It was not the cry of the hawk I had captured, for by shifting my position against the sun, I was now seeing further up, straight out of the sun's eye, where she must have been soaring restlessly above us for untold hours. Heard his mate. And I saw them both now. He was rising to meet her. And from far up, ringing from peak to peak of the summits over us, came a cry of such unutterable and ecstatic joy that it sounds down across the years and tingles among the cups on my quiet breakfast table. Wow. What did we just sing? We just sang it. Charles Wesley's line, the last stanza, Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Wow. That's what we came to celebrate today. And we can't go home without singing that final stanza. No other stanza but the final one. Come on, guys, stand to your feet. We've got to sing that stanza that captures it all so powerfully. Words on the screen for you. Almighty God, we thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the reunion and the reconciliation. We praise you. We love you. We worship you forever and ever. Amen.